As we come to the fourth chapter, I think it's right for us to ask the question, what is this book about? We've said already in various ways that this book shows to us, of course, repentance. It shows to us how a sinner is to make his suit with God that he might find mercy. And you have those images that I've repeated time and again from chapter 1, chapter 2, and now from the third chapter. And all of these, of course, are setting before us genuine examples. Two, of course, under the chastening hand of God in providence, this last one, Nineveh's case, being that of a people repenting under the preaching of God's word. Manual of repentance. But as you come to this fourth chapter, that question takes on an even deeper sense to it. As we come to the conclusion of this text, we'll see that the fourth chapter, very much like the second, really does answer for us that basic question. What is this book about? I said to you in chapter 2, where you have Jonah's prayer, perhaps the most neglected aspect of this prophecy, that really there you have the model of repentance. There you have the penitent man, as it were, opened up for all of us to see how the grace of God is working in him. Well, if chapter 2 sets before us something of a a model of repentance, chapter 4 sets before us illustratively an explanation of what is the outcome. What What is the conclusion of those who do repent genuinely? It is, in many ways, a chapter that illuminates not just what you have in chapter 1, though we'll see that in just a moment's time, but really it illuminates the entire text for us. Now, as we look at this fourth chapter, it's, I think, important to remember that of all of the difficult portions of this text, both of the primarily difficult texts are found in our chapter. Uh, Verses 1 to 3, Uh, often are wrestled um, with varying success by exegetes. Verses 10 to 11 are also texts that many commentators spill much ink on uh, to grapple with. But the difficulty and also the promise of wrestling through these texts is just what I've said. If we really want to grasp what this book is about, the truths of God that are set before us by God's Spirit, these texts are going to hold very much the key. And so, as we look at these first three verses of chapter 4, our introductory comments will be a bit longer than usual, as we hope to unpack and then more accurately apply what the Spirit of God says here. So, first of all, I want you to notice what you have in the very first verse. Here you have the words, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And of course, the obvious question we need to begin with is, well, what really was the object of Jonah's displeasure? And perhaps we're quick to assume that this is Jonah being spared, sorry, Nineveh being spared. It is Nineveh saved that is the thing that coaxes this great, this exceeding displeasure in the prophet. What's striking is, as you look at the sixth verse of chapter 4, it very much appears to be the case that day 41 has not yet occurred when Jonah prays what he does in our text this evening. In fact, it's very much the case, it seems, that Jonah is not so much persuaded that Nineveh will indeed be spared. Absolutely. You'll notice that he even goes outside of the city later on to see what will come of it. The immediate antecedent, though, that is certain 
that which Jonah the prophet could see, really, was Nineveh's repentance. He looked at a city that was once boastful in its power, boastful even in its sin, and now he has watched this city turn to sackcloth and ashes. How delorious were the cries that he heard from the palace to the street. That is really what you have in this text up to this stage. That's what we really see for sure. And the prophet here, as he looks at these things, the text tells us he was displeased by them exceedingly. But there's something else in the text that we can't miss. As the inspired historian presents this to us, note how he describes the affections of the prophet. The words are, he was displeased exceedingly. And of course, the original, we we certainly see this in our own language as well. The idea is that he was very grieved. Inmost parts of the prophet were moved with indignation at what he saw. But what's striking about this text is how these things are communicated to us. What's striking is this kind of language is used predominantly throughout the scriptures to describe not only righteous anger, but particularly divine anger. I'll just say two examples of this. Against Onan in Genesis 38, we read, the thing which he did displeased the Lord. That's the word in our text. Wherefore he slew him. Again, when Israel was numbered by David, we're told God was displeased with this thing, Therefore, he smote Israel. The displeasure of God, the grieving of Jonah are describing, are, 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 excuse me, the words describe both phenomenon are the same in the Hebrew. But then as you come to the very next line, we're told here, he, that is Jonah, was very angry. The idea behind that in the original is very simple. It's almost as though the fire is being kindled. It is a flame that is growing. That's the idea. And as you look throughout the text, the sense is, of course, that Jonah has actually become wrathful. He is genuinely enraged. But again, the description that the prophet gives to us here of his own disposition is striking. Because even more so than in the first line, this last phrase primarily describes the indignation of God. Again, I'll recite to you just two other examples. Against Moses, we're told, the anger of the Lord was kindled. That's the word of our text, Exodus 4.14. With regard to Israel, when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, and the Lord heard it, and his anger was kindled. Again, the word of our text. And the fire of the Lord burnt among them and consumed them that were in the uppermost, uttermost parts of the camp. That's Numbers 11.1. What you have in this text, then, is very clearly a a violent, really, description of the prophet's inward response to what he sees. What's striking is, as the inspired historian presents these things to us, he uses language that is most often ascribed to God's just indignation as he looks at the prophet. The sense here you can't miss, can you? is that Jonah has already taken to himself in his heart the position of God. He is taking upon himself the right of the supreme judge, at least in his affections. And the narrator brings that out to us very clearly. And then we're told, in this state, he prayed unto the Lord. That 
word prayed there is, of course, a very common one in the Old Testament. But what's striking about that is the word that we have here is also elsewhere translated with the idea of giving sentence, passing judgment. It's translated that way in Isaiah 16, elsewhere throughout the book of Job. Take counsel, execute judgment, pass sentence. Uh, Perhaps we can't make too much of that, but isn't it striking that that's the word that comes to us here? Jonah, who is described here as taking upon himself the attributes of a just judge, now as he approaches God solemnly in prayer, is, as it were, passing sentence. And certainly, as you look at the content of the prayer, it is imprecation, and it is imprecation from this wrathful bend. But I want you to notice what you have in then the second verse. You have here not just the response of the prophet, but you have here something of an interjection. I pray thee, the prophet cries, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Now obviously the prophet is taking our minds back to the very first three verses of the first chapter. We're taken back to that moment when Jonah himself actually disobeys God, and that becomes the catalyst for the narrative. That's where the prophet takes us. And I would just note for you here at this stage. Isn't it striking that at this moment we're told that right before what was perhaps the greatest failing in Jonah's life, and one of the most notorious failings in all of Scripture, Jonah was nevertheless engaged in prayer. Reminds us, doesn't it, in its own way, that it's not just the act, but it's the manner of prayer that's so crucial. But at any rate, the prophet tells us he expected these things while he had received his first commission. And then he says, therefore I fled before unto Tarshish. And so what you have in this prayer then is first of all justification. The prophet is seeking to demonstrate to the Lord that his actions were right. When he fled from the Lord in the first place, Jonah was doing the most reasonable thing imaginable. But then the second thing here is that as he looks at what has taken place in Nineveh, which again, by the way, is primarily Nineveh's repentance, as Jonah looks at that moment, he says, the thing that he did not desire but he expected has been fulfilled. We can't miss that. The prophet is saying that while he was in Israel when he had received the commission initially, He expected the very thing that now lies in front of him. Therefore, says the prophet, I fled before unto Tarshish. And then this, For I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. And what's striking is this is somehow Jonah's chiefest complaint. He's saying that this was the thing that he he was so disinclined toward in the first three verses of chapter 1, and this is the very thing that gives rise to that anger that's described for us in the first verse of our text this evening. It's just this, that he knows that God is gracious, merciful, slow to anger of great kindness, and in his own words, repentance of the evil. This is perhaps the most perplexing part of the prophecy. Why is it this that the prophet centers on? Why is it this that causes the prophet to be so perplexed and so displeased? 
Well, before we even answer that, we come then to the petition. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. This is Jonah's assessment. The graciousness of God that he's just described has become misery for the prophet to the point where he no longer wants to be in the land of the living. And this is perhaps the second most difficult part of the text. So, without intending really to be too tedious, I think it is right for us just to look at these verses together and ask the question, what really are they saying? And to ask that question in relation to how these things have been interpreted already before through various exegetes. Uh, Again, my aim here is to preach the text, but I think it's right for us to spend some time and ask, well, which meanings perhaps best suit the text? First of all, I've set before you that some interpret these verses to say that really this is the prophet, well, he's looking at the legitimacy or the claims of legitimacy toward his prophetic calling as being somehow jeopardized by Nineveh being spared. In other words, as we look at the text, it could read something like this. I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that you would be gracious and so contradict my message of judgment. That's how some exegetes take the text. And I'd say that this is perhaps the most rising interpretation. In other words, they take the idea that Jonah's wrathful preaching in chapter 3 is in fact contradicted by what you have in 3.10 when God spares the city. Now, I'd say, friend, before we... Before we adopt that, there are two issues that we, we quickly can discern with that interpretation. The first is, is that Jonah himself tells us in the text that he understood that his message of judgment contained the caveat that if they repent, God would be gracious. Again, the, the warning that God had given to Nineveh in chapter 1 was this, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. And Jonah tells us in our text this evening that when he heard that commission, he said he knew that this came from a God who would repent of the evil. He knew that this came from a God who was gracious. He, he knew, in other words, that God had a gracious design, even in giving him such a commission. But the second difficulty with that interpretation is just this, uh, that Nineveh, Nineveh in the decree that the king makes, already acknowledges that the possibility of repentance and so mercy was already there. And so it's not the case that Ninevites would look at Jonah as though he were somehow an illegitimate prophet if wrath didn't fall upon them. They would ascribe it instead to the free mercy of God that they mention there in verse 9 of chapter 3. Another and perhaps the most popular interpretation of these verses is this. I fled... For I knew that you would be gracious to this nation whom I hate. And the idea there is that Jonah has a visceral hatred for Assyria, for Nineveh in particular. And there are two issues with that as well that I'd cite. First of all, friend, it's an inference, if you like, drawn from an assumption. The assumption in the text is just this. Well, if Jonah is displeased that Nineveh repents and that Nineveh is despaired, is spared, well then obviously it's because Jonah hates Ninevites. Obviously, Jonah simply hates the Assyrians. And what's striking about that assumption, however popular it may be, that's nowhere given to us in the text. Nowhere do you find Jonah at any place 
citing that as the principal reason why he fled from the commission in the first place or anywhere in chapter 4, aside from the text that we have before us this evening, if we take it this way, even those verses don't communicate anything to us about some visceral hatred against Assyria. Instead, what we're told here in our text, the prophet's issue is not with Nineveh. The direct object of his anger here is at the graciousness of God. And we can't lose sight of that. But secondly, and I'd cite this also, it would be quite, quite remarkable for a prophet who is genuinely penitent, as we saw him to be in, gen- in the second chapter of this prophecy, to be so ill-affected and ignorant of so many fundamental aspects of biblical religion. What I mean by that is, friend, as you think of the prophet singing praise to God, he was commanded, of course, to sing the words of Psalm 67, in which it was supposed to be the heart cry of God's people, that all of the nations would not only know that the Lord, he is God, but would even know his mercy. That was part and parcel by God's design of Israelite worship. It was supposed to be really, in those moments of worship, when those words were sung, it was supposed to be the outletting of the inmost disposition of those who were God's people. And so if Jonah here really has an issue with Gentiles receiving mercy, he is not only slightly out of step, but fundamentally out of step with biblical faith. But then secondly, of course, again, as we would see the prophet singing in praise to God, he would sing the words, All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and shall glorify thy name. That is a promise that God had made. This was the very expectation that Israel should have. And so if Jonah, again, is simply displeased because Assyrians have been converted, well, he seems to be very much a prophet disaffected and largely ignorant of what God has promised. And though this is very popular, we need to be very careful not to impute too much or too little to the prophets of God. Um, we, We should read these things carefully and reverently. So is there a third option, how we look at this text? And I'd submit to you that there is. It would be the ancient option given to us by early Jewish and early Christian exegetes. And it's this. If we look back at the text, we could read it thus. Jonah says, I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that you would be gracious, that you intended to bring Nineveh to repentance, while toward my people Israel you did not. And of course, Jonah would know that much simply because Jonah had been called not to go to the northern tribes, but to take this word that was ensured success to another land. Now, friend, I want you to notice this. As you look at the text, you'll see here that the prophet rages against divine sovereignty, not against the wideness of God's grace. As you look at this text, you'll notice here that the issue that he takes here is not that Jonah, like a man who is, of course, a man who required such grace, would receive it. The issue in this text, as we see even at the end of the fourth chapter, is that Jonah has an issue with how God dispenses it. God sovereignly works in a way that Jonah would rather not. 
In the 11th verse, I want you to notice when God deals with the prophet rather decisively, defends himself from the cavils of the prophet, the Lord cites here that he is one who has ownership over those whom he has redeemed. He has a prerogative to be gracious to whom he will be gracious. He doesn't cite here the depth of his grace. He cites here his sovereignty. But then secondly, too, I want you to notice that the sentiment that the prophet expresses here, if the issue is not so much that Nineveh was saved, but Israel wasn't, that Nineveh was granted repentance while Israel remained in rebellion, well, friend, that mirrors, doesn't it, very much what we read in Jeremiah 12. The prophet looking at the nations of the world all around him, not so much touched by the wrath of God, while the wrath of God seems most to be manifested against God's covenant people. In Jonah's case, the complaint is still sinful, but it's important for us to understand here, his sin is not against the second table and his hatred of Nineveh. His sin manifestly is against the first table and the umbrage that he takes at God's sovereignty. Now, friend, as we look at this, as we seek to apply it just briefly, seeing here that Jonah's issue is that God has called him to be an instrument, that God has called him to be a prophet, that would be a harbinger to the repentance of a people who were not Israel, who were not his own countrymen. It shows us, doesn't it, here, a man who does, at this stage, complain against the sovereignty of God. And even in our text, we're told here in a very different way, in a very illustrative way, just how great an evil it is to complain against divine sovereignty. I want us to see that under two headings. I want us to see the essence of this evil and then also its accidents. What it is in itself, first of all. Jonah's rage here is expressed in great detail. Uh, We're told here that he is functioning as one who we would expect, would have righteous cause. A man who who is taking upon himself the attributes of one who is really pursuing God's cause. So he's described in such words in the first verse. A man displeased, a man waxing angry. But instead what we find here is a man who is actually engaged against the work of God. And beloved, if you would imagine this just for a moment, if the prophet it was, was, was so displeased with Nineveh when he found her, before he began preaching, if we read these words as it were at the beginning of the third chapter, when, when Jonah came to a city that was certainly mired in iniquity, it wouldn't surprise us, would it, that these words that often communicate righteous indignation would be described to the prophet. But then whenever they are applied to the work of God, as they are in the fourth chapter, they're not acceptable. They're base presumption. The prophet here is taking upon himself the place of God. He heartily and he verbally stands in judgment with the dealings of God. Friend, this reminds us, doesn't it, that to revile providence is to judge God. To revile providence is to judge God. It's the, pro- it's the apostles' question of Romans 9, isn't it? 
O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? The apostle, of course, is telling us there how ridiculous it is for something like clay to take umbrage at all with any of God's dealings. Who are you, O man, to reply against God? The idea is, of course, repeated for us in Jeremiah 18. And it's not only very clear in those texts that it's ridiculous, but, but it's even set before us in Scripture as a sin against nature. I want you to notice, in Job 34 we're told this, God will not lay upon man more than right, that he, that is man, should enter into judgment with God. There, Elihu is saying this quite universally. In any case, it is the case that God does rightly. And why is it that no one can enter into judgment with him? Because God manifestly is a God who in all of his dealings is above reproach. It's the idea of the text. And so, friend, it is a recurring theme. When people take it upon themselves to complain against providence, there is no way to divide one's complaint from providence and from God. Note how this is set before us in Numbers 14. There Israel cries, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness? And know the Lord's response. How long shall I bear with this evil generation which murmur against me? I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel which they murmur against me. They're complaining against actions. They're complaining against moments. But God says they're simply murmuring against himself. When the folks complain against divine providence, God sees it as murmuring against himself. My friend, as you look at this text, you see here how different Jonah and Jeremiah are. Jonah here takes exception to God's dealings with Nineveh, and he takes upon himself the posture of one who would judge the works of God. Jeremiah, in the text that we read, begins very differently. He begins, Righteous art thou. Jonah would stand in judgment with the Lord. The prophet would talk of God's dealings, but would begin very clearly, acknowledging God's righteousness in all of his dealings, so as not to cast any aspersions on the work of God. Certainly, that's the example we should follow, and not Jonah in our text. But secondly and finally, what is it that this anger produces? What is it that this complaint against providence produces? And what you see here, of course, is the words of verse 1 again. The man is genuinely unsettled. The man is truly beside himself. As soon as his affections have been set against God's dealings, as soon as he's moved against God's providence, inwardly, he's a man who is torn. But I also want you to notice this. Note the petition. It is better for me to die than to live. This disaffection for God's dealings 
has made it so that Jonah cannot take even the least blessing that he receives without it feeling almost like ash. He loathes blessing. He describes himself as a man unfitted for life. He reviles the mercies that he has received. This is a man who we see, in other words, manifestly in such great malcontent that he's not fit for the land of the living. That's how he sees himself. This is the man, this is the soul that complains against God's dealings. This is the soul that would go to God and say that the Lord has not done right. Eventually it leads them to the conclusion they would rather not be in God's world. They would rather not be even even surrounded by the temporal blessings of the Lord. And this malcontent then produces great spiritual evils. Here you have sin begetting sin. His disaffection for what God has done for Nineveh has led Jonah even to affection for self-murder. Has led him to despise even those blessings that Jonah the prophet already enjoyed. And in many ways is calling for God to undo what the Lord did when he spared him at the end of chapter 1. The prophet here is so malcontent. His issue here with Nineveh has led him to such a point that even his past mercies that he's received, he begins to loathe. And beloved, we need to be careful here, don't we? To allow this sentiment to fester leads us genuinely to be unfitted for life. We cannot take such mercy as Jonah received. We cannot enjoy even those temporal goods that God gives with a spirit of malcontent. A resignedness to the will of God is required for those things to be enjoyed. And beloved, as you look at this text, what you hear, you have here in its own way, a picture of malcontent souring all of God's works, souring his blessings as well as his judgments. Illustrations abound, don't they? Take Mordecai and Esther, a man whose malcontent led himself to the gallows. Take Ahab, a man, again, whose malcontent led him to commit murder, and, of course, to the pronouncement of judgment. Or take believers, David, when he ought to have been engaged in battle, when he should have been content with those whom the Lord had already given him, when he should have been very careful to mind his gaze and not to covet another man's wife, his malcontent at what God had given him led him to great, great extremities in sin. And here you have a prophet doing the same. A believer, yes. But his issue with providence, his unwillingness to be resigned to the will of God, leads him to great sin. So, friend, that leads us to the question, well, are we a people who are resigned to the will of God? And there are two marks that I'd cite this evening. The first is that you take from the text that we read in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 12, the prophet begins in a fundamentally different way. When he reflects on God's works, he begins with the assumption. He begins with the truth. God is righteous. 
when you and I reflect on God's dealings with us, is this where we begin? Well, beloved, we must. This is the mark of one who truly is resigned to God's dealings with us. Righteous art thou. No matter what befalls, righteous is the Lord. But secondly, another mark of of resignation to the will of God is just this. It's the very opposite of what you have in our text. Here you have a man who is quick to reflect and negatively on the dealings of God and somehow to go from there to a point where he would cast aspersions even on the character of God. The reverse is the mark of a resigned soul. You see, as the soul encounters even difficult providences, the resigned disposition leads them to cry, how may I see the goodness of God, the righteousness of God displayed in this moment? They'll be quick, in other words, to trace their difficult providences, however difficult they might be, in such a way as to demonstrate the righteousness of the Lord. They'll, in other words, be the Lord's apologist in their own hearts. Samuel Shaw, a man who I cite to you very often, is perhaps one of the greatest examples outside of Scripture for this kind of thing. He lost his wife, he lost his two children, a servant, and a number of other extended family members to the plague. And nine months after he buried his children, he wrote various reasons why he could see the righteousness, the graciousness, and the goodness of God in his bereavement. A man who was so resigned that he looked even in his difficulty to see the righteousness of God and was very quick to proclaim it. Now, beloved, if this describes us, then even this text holds out some consolation. And indeed, we will close with this. How high-handedly does Jonah sin in this moment? A man who has received so much of the mercy of God, a, a man who has been used so mightily of the Lord, to now so indignantly look at God's dealings, whatever his cause might be, to so esteem God's dealings that they were somehow unrighteous, that's really, the, that's really the implication. And yet, beloved, how tenderly does the Lord deal with a prophet even in this moment? There is no storm in chapter 4. There is no thundering like at Sinai, no quaking of the earth. Even though Jonah sinned so high-handedly, how quietly and how tenderly does the Lord deal with his prophet here? We should see here just the long-suffering love of God, shouldn't we? And so, friend, as we look at this text, we should marvel at this, shouldn't we? That when you and I are quick to cast aspersions from our hearts on God's dealings with us, that for his children, God is even still so long-suffering, so as to not only provide them breath, shelter, comfort, but even to still hold them 
as children whom he loves. Beloved, even in this text, and over God's dealings with the prophet, we see standing here the long-suffering love of God. And this should rejoice our hearts. But beloved, the exhortation from this text, of course, is negative. Do not be as the prophet is, just as it was negative in chapter 1. Or to put it positively, we are called to be those who we describe, who are described for us in Psalm 131. Those who are truly resigned, weaned, and quite willing in all things to commend the righteousness of God in all of his dealings. And may the Lord make us such people, even as we say. Amen.